family. Um, our scripture reading today will come from the book of 1 Kings, uh, the whole chapter of 13. Starting from verse 1. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man, and the, when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, "Seize him!" And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he. Could not draw it back to himself. The altar was also torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, because as it, and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water, nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father, father that the words that he had spoken to the king, the words that he had spoken to the king, and their father said to them, Which way did he go? And his sons showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God, and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go in with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water here, nor return by the way you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah. 
Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the, in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body, and behold, and behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road, and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way, from the way heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and kill, killed him, according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. And after this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, any who would he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became a sin to the house of Jeroboam so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, church. Um, good to be here with you this morning. Uh, if you're new, if you're visiting, uh, I just want to say, uh, first of all, my name is Vincent. I'm the teaching pastor here at Pillar Okinawa. And I just want to say again, welcome. Um, we're, we're happy that you're with us. Uh, we care about you specifically uh, we care about your relationship with Jesus Christ. We truly want what's best for you because we want you to know Jesus Christ and we want you to uh, know God's will and walk in his ways for your life. So um, even though you may not have shaken my hand or we may not personally met, uh, I do care about you in a deep way uh, because I want to see Jesus and all of his blessings uh, in your life. And that's our heart here at Pillar. Um, we want you to know and love Jesus, and we want to walk in this journey of seeking him together. I'm going to pray real quick, and then we'll just get right into the passage. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you, we thank you. God, I ask that you would humble me, God. Uh, would you humble us before uh, your living word, God, before your uh, living and active word, God, that never fails. Father, I pray that we would take uh, your promises seriously, and I pray that we would take your warnings seriously, God. Lord, I pray that we would take refuge in you uh, and in your unfailing word. God, would you help us to worship you? 
Would you help us to love you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I think we're in a pretty interesting passage. Uh, probably not super familiar for us. Uh, kind of a weird story, right? Uh, a lot of questions going on with this story. But thankfully, the main idea, the main point of this narrative in the Bible is really quite simple. Who here likes it when someone says to them, I told you so? No one, right? I don't. It's annoying. Now, on the other hand, who likes being the person that says, I told you so? Yeah, I, me too. Um, somewhere deep down in my heart, I just, I, I don't know why I like it, but I just do. Uh, I like being right, and it's my toxic trait, what can I say? Um, drives my wife nuts, and I'm working on it, but... Um, this text is really like a big I told you so. It's a big I told you so from God. Uh, God said to Jeroboam in chapter 11, back in chapter 11, he said, walk in my ways, follow me, and I will build you a sure house. I will make your dynasty great, and you will rule over the kingdom of Israel. But if not, if you do not, I will tear the kingdom away from you, and your name will be erased from the face of the land. Likewise, the man of God, the guy that got killed by the lion, uh, he was told, God said to him, don't eat and don't drink in this place and go home by a different route. Both of these individuals ultimately rejected the word of the Lord and it resulted in serious consequences for them. So this is like a big I told you so from God. It's a big warning from God, that his word never fails to come to pass, except a key, huge difference between us and God, between me and God, is that the reason God is giving us this warning is not so he can, it's not so he can tell you that he was right and you were wrong. No, it's because he cares about you, because he loves you, because he wants what's good for you in your life. God takes no joy in seeing us ruin our lives by departing from the good word that he has given us. So he is warning us. He is giving us his word because he loves us. The main point of this passage is simple. God's word does not fail to come to pass. His word of blessing and his word of judgment uh, look on the screen with me at Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11. Here Isaiah writes, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That is the truth about God's word. And we see this truth played out in the history of Israel. So our main idea this morning is this. The word of the Lord never fails. The word of the Lord never fails to accomplish God's promises. 
Right? The author of Kings highlights uh, three aspects about God's unfailing word. One, God's word is good. Two, it is clear. And three, it is final. The unfailing word of the Lord is good. It is clear and it is final. So taking a closer look at point number one. The goodness of God's word is made very clear against the backdrop of Jeroboam's sin. Now, Jeroboam was a king in Israel after the kingdom divided. Uh, So after King Solomon was reigning, uh, the kingdom split, and Jeroboam ruled over the, the northern territory, while Solomon's son ruled over the southern territory. There's a, there's a little map here, right? The kingdom of Israel in the green and the kingdom of Judah in the gray. Jeroboam ruled over that, all that green region. Now, God, again, gave Jeroboam a very kind and very good word. God had good promises for Jeroboam. Uh, he said, if you follow me, then I will establish your dynasty I'll give you all this territory you will rule over it I will make your name great in all the earth so it's a promise very similar to the promise that God gave David right this is a good word to Jeroboam but what did Jeroboam do he rejected that word he despised it and he rebelled against the Lord if you have your Bibles open uh, you can look with me just one chapter back at uh, 1 Kings chapter 12 In verse 26, Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Jeroboam makes two golden calves, which should immediately remind us of the golden calf that Israel had made back in Exodus when they rebelled against the Lord. So he makes these two golden calves and he sets up two places of worship, one at Dan in the northern part, far at the north, and then one in Bethel at the southern end. And um, what Jeroboam is trying to do really with his made-up religion is he's trying to connect it with the history of Israel. That's part of the reason why he chooses golden calves. And we also have archaeological evidence that shows us that the places of worship that he set up Uh, mimic the worship practices of the temple at Jerusalem. So he tried to set up the same kinds of altars. The way that they processed the animals for sacrifices was all the same. And then Jeroboam says something uh, that echoes what we see in Exodus, in the book of Exodus chapter 32. Here, Israel had rebelled against the Lord and set up a golden calf for themselves. And this is what God has to say about that. He says, They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, 
These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Jeroboam repeats this verbatim. So what Jeroboam is trying to do here is not so much set up a brand new religion and set up brand new gods. No, what he's trying to do is he's trying to associate his cult with the history of Israel. He's trying to borrow from what they have done to legitimize his new false religion. He's twisting and distorting, trying to use God's name in a false way. What Jeroboam was trying to do is he was trying to cast God into an image of his own making, an, an image of his own liking. He tried to use God's name to set up his own self-serving false religion. He sets up his calves. He sets up his own places of worship. He sets up his own priests. And he sets up his own religious holidays, trying to copy the true religion of Israel. And he places, he tries to slap God's name on it in an attempt to legitimize his false religion. And this is just the behavior of cults. This is what cults do. They take certain truths from Christianity and they add to it and they distort it and they twist it. We're all familiar with Mormonism. It's uh, relevant to our context, and I'm not trying to pick on any Mormons or Mormon beliefs or anything like that. And you know, I want to say this in the kindest way possible, but sometimes we just have to be honest. Right? Mormonism tries to borrow certain truths from biblical Christianity, and it, they add to it. They twist it. But the, the marketing strategy of the Mormon church is not to highlight the differences first. Right? They're not opening the conversation by saying, by talking about how they believe God had sexual relations with Mary, or how Jesus had multiple wives, or how he's the brother of Lucifer, or how you can't drink coffee. Hey, the Mormon religion, the Mormon cult, focuses on the similarities, tries to borrow, and then twist to lead Christians in a particular way. Jeroboam was trying to twist and distort the true religion of Israel. He was doing it to serve himself. And here's what is so convicting about this. In verse 26, we see why Jeroboam did this. He said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. See, Jeroboam did this because he was afraid. He was afraid of losing the kingdom. See, God's good word wasn't enough for Jeroboam. Remember, God promised Jeroboam the ten tribes, all this territory, to make his kingdom great, but it wasn't good enough for him. He despised God's word, and instead, the God he worshipped was the God of security. He was trying to make himself secure, make his kingdom secure. 
He worshipped the God of security, so he tried to cast the true God into an image of his own liking. Church, I think this is so convicting because so often I find myself enamored with the God of security, financial security. I think to myself, well, if I was financially secure, if we were more financially health, uh, healthy, then I would be really happy. Then we would have a happy family and nothing to worry about. Then we would be secure. Those are false promises from a false God. Church, I worry about money. So look, we, we already have one pastor, Ben, who can't stop spending money. Now you have a, another pastor who worries too much about money. Okay, you're 0 for 2. The example of Jeroboam should teach us to take God's word seriously. Our comfort, our refuge is not in this idol of security. No, the the only true security, the only true assurance that we can have is in the fact that God's word never fails to accomplish his purposes. Don't take the word of the Lord lightly. All right, our second point, God's word is not only good, but it is clear. And the clarity of God's word is shown to us against the backdrop of the man of God's disobedience. Now, again, this is kind of a weird story. There's a bunch of questions that are associated with it, like, why did this old prophet lie? Why did he try to get the man of God to disobey. And what's up with the lion? Why didn't the lion eat the body after he he killed the man? Okay, all sorts of unanswered questions that the text doesn't tell us about. So we just have to leave them unanswered. But again, the main point is really clear. And that is that the word of the Lord does not fail to come to pass. So Because we're probably unfamiliar with this story, just want to recap it real quickly. In this narrative, we have three main characters. The man of God, Jeroboam, the king of Israel, and the old prophet. So what happens is that Jeroboam disobeys the Lord. He sets up this uh, idol and this false worship. So the man of God goes to confront Jeroboam after that. The man of God obeys. He doesn't stick around to eat or drink, but he leaves by another road. But then an old prophet finds him. This prophet lies to him and gets him to disobey God. Now the Lord had told this old prophet, or the the Lord had told the man of God, he said to him that he would surely die if he didn't listen to this word. And you know what happens? Just that. A lion meets the man of God and kills him as he's headed home. The lion kills him and doesn't eat him. And then a donkey shows up to awkwardly stand next to this lion and do nothing there. And what this is showing us is that the reason the man of God died 
is because God's word is firm. God's word is clear, and it shall come to pass. You see, God had spoken very, very clearly to the man of God. In chapter 13, we see this repeated phrase, by the word of the Lord. Count 10 times that it pops up. And the point is that the man of God knew what God had spoken to him. He knew the word that came to him. So what this is telling us, what this is teaching us, is that it doesn't matter who's trying to get you to disobey the word of the Lord. It doesn't matter if they call themselves a prophet or an apostle or a pastor or a priest. You see, the man of God should have known that this guy was lying to him because God's word was clear. So church, it doesn't matter the position or the title of whoever's trying to get you to do something contrary to the word of the Lord. You can know right off the bat that they're lying if they're contradicting what God has given us in his word. Okay, likewise, the titles that we have do not matter before God. This guy was only called a man of God. That's what we know him by in this narrative. He was a godly man. He had good behavior. His performance was good, but you know what? His title and his performance did not impress God. Look with me at Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Here Peter says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. God is not partial. He's not partial towards us or any, anyone else. God is just. That's a little bit ambiguous, but so I like how the, the King James Version translates it. Peter said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Okay, that means that God isn't impressed by how godly we think we're living. He's not impressed by our titles, our positions, our work. All the things that impress the world, God is not impressed by that. You see, God's not looking for impressive people. He is looking for obedient people. It is so easy. I'm talking to myself here. It is so easy for us to compromise on God's word because we think that God is going to be partial to us. You know, I've... I've really promised God this time, that, and I really mean it this time. Okay, that's not why God shows us grace. The only reason he shows us grace is because of his son. God is no respecter of persons. And that means that we cannot presume upon the grace of God. We're not owed God's grace. God is infinitely just, he is infinitely wise, and he is infinitely good. Therefore, his word stands. It is final. He hasn't made a mistake speaking to us. And in his kindness, he warns us about the authority that his word has. And that brings us to our last point. God's word is final. And the finality of God's word is made very clear against the backdrop of its fulfillment. 
So if you look with me in chapter 13, at verses 31 and 32, here the old prophet, the lying prophet, he says, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. And after reading this narrative, what should we expect? Well, nothing else other than it comes to pass. And it does come to pass in history in 2 Kings chapter 23 verses 15 through 20. So you can turn with me there in your Bibles or look up on the screen. Second Kings 23, verse 15. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin... That altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah, and as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord, that the man of God, back in 1 Kings chapter 13, proclaimed 400 years earlier, who had predicted these things. Then he said, What is the monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Jerusalem and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, Let him be. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines of also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria which the kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel. And he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. So the man of God's prophecy comes to pass just like he says. Okay, he had named Josiah 400 years prior to this event taking place. The word of God's judgment came to pass through the rule of Josiah. Josiah was a king that loved God's word and honored God's word. Jeroboam was a king who despised God's word. Jeroboam worshiped the God of security and in doing so he led the people astray in false worship. But again, Josiah, a son of David, loved the word of the Lord, honored the word of the Lord, and the result of that was restoring true worship in Israel. God's word is good, it is clear, and it is final. It is a lamp unto our feet, and a light unto our path. So when we ignore God's word, we ignore it to our own peril. But if we 
follow God's word, if we obey God's word, then true worship will be restored in our lives. True fellowship with God, which is what worship is all about, fellowship with the Lord. If we obey God's word and walk in it, then fellowship with God will be restored. But therein lies the problem, doesn't it? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we have never, not even for a single moment, been perfectly obedient to God's word. We've been more like Jeroboam, despising God's word because it's not good enough for us. We've been more like the man of God, compromising on God's word, even though it is clear. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us, has given us a good word. He has spoken to us his word of grace and mercy in the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Church, if we don't have the gospel, then we do not have anything. We owe everything to God's word of grace delivered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we can summarize this gospel message like this. Even though my conscience even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them and of still being inclined towards all sorts of evil nevertheless without my deserving it at all out of sheer grace God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Jesus Christ. As if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. As if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. Church, this is the gospel, this is the good news, that we are sinners who have failed, sinners who are inclined towards all sorts of evil. Yet God, because of Jesus Christ's, because of Jesus Christ and his work, treats us as if we had never sinned, nor ever been sinners. The gospel is it's radical. It is incredible. It is like the transition from darkness to light, from death to life. And praise God that in the fullness of time, he sent a greater son of David to fulfill this word of grace and restore true worship in his people. In John chapter 4, Jesus speaks to a Samaritan woman. Right, this is the story of the woman at the well. Jesus speaks to a Samaritan woman who would be very, very low on the social ladder. But he approaches her and he speaks to her. And he recognizes that this woman was confused about worship. Right, she thought 
Uh, she knew that the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem, but she thought that since she was a Samaritan, she could worship in a different way at a different place. And so Jesus is speaking to her in the context of misplaced worship. But it wasn't so much the location, the location of worship, that was her problem. Her problem is what exactly she was worshiping. What was the God she was worshiping? We're told that this woman had five husbands, and at the time that Jesus approaches her and confronts her, she was living with a man that was not her husband. So here's what I think. This is my theory of what's going on here. We, We can't know for sure because the text doesn't tell us, but I think this woman was worshiping the God of her insecurities. She was afraid to be alone. She needed that attention, that relationship, and the security that that kind of relationship provides. She thought that she needed those things to make her whole. But Jesus, the greater son of David, graciously comes to her, this this woman low on the social ladder, and restores true worship in her heart. He tells her that because of his work, true worshipers will be able to approach God the Father in spirit and in truth. Here, Jesus isn't saying that you can worship according to whatever way you like. That's not what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. No, what it means to worship in spirit and in truth is uh, that we can only worship truly, that we can only have fellowship with God because of who Jesus is and what he has done. What he's saying to her is that you can only worship truly according to who I am and what I have done for you. In Christ, God's word is good, it is clear, and it is final. The book of Hebrews tells us at the beginning The author writes, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has told us that there is only one way to come to him. But there is only one way to be a true worshiper and worship in spirit and in truth. And that one way is through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is no other way, there is no other option. So praise God, He has fulfilled His word of grace and mercy to us in the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we are humbled by your kindness and generosity that you have shown us. Lord, would you help us to trust in your word, to understand the truth that it will never fail to accomplish your purpose, God. God, thankful, we are thankful that you are faithful to your word. We are thankful that you are faithful to us. 
We love you. We praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.